All right, 2 Samuel 21. And I'll be blunt with you, this is one of those chapters where being a Calvary Chapel pastor is a disadvantage. Uh, Because you read this and you go, wow, let's skip this (laughs) and go to another chapter. Uh, But we cover it all, and so here we are, and uh, I will do my best. So, but uh, we are at this point in the book of 2 Samuel coming to the later years of Daniel's life, and these last few chapters of 2 Samuel, they, they're almost kind of like a, an appendix. They, they summarize his reign in some points, and in other points, they just kind of list key events that occurred in his latter years. Uh, but the, the kind of constant theme that we see, though, in David's latter years is that they were full of conflict, just like God told him after he sinned with uh, Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. So, this chapter gives us two giant-sized problems that David encountered uh, in the latter years of his reign. Uh, The first one is a three-year famine. Most of our time will be there tonight. Uh, And that famine is because of uh, Israel's broken promise. And then the second giant-sized problem was uh, renewed hostilities with the Philistines, whose armies are now led by Goliath's four sons. So we'll get to that uh, in the latter part of the study, but let's begin here in chapter 21, verse 1. Gives us the setting first. It says, Then there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now we're going to interrupt. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. So we get the setting here. We have a famine, and it kind of explains to us why. Um, so there were two, two things that happened to me when I read through this chapter. The first thing that happened uh, was I was kind of like, God, what do I do with this? The second thing that happened is I got triggered. Because you read here, and, and I look up famine, and this is the literal definition in, in my Hebrew le- you know, lexicon for famine. A lengthy pandemic lack of food over a geographical area. That lasted for how many years? Year after year after year. And I was like, okay, I'm going to close this. I'm going to study something else for a bit, and then we'll come back. Because, you know, we've been living in our own kind of pandemic for, what, year after year, and now it's after year, Right. Uh, so yeah, so if you got any of those little memes for triggered, you can put my face up there for Second Samuel 21. So this, this famine's going on. It's located just to the area of Israel. And again, it's back to back to back, three years in a row. And, and so David, he inquired of the Lord. He said, God, what's up? You know, uh, it means to make a verbal request, inquired, uh, but it can also mean to hold responsible. In other words, uh, David knows something's up because God promised Israel that they wouldn't experience famine if the nation obeyed the Lord, right? And so David asked the Lord why the famine is happening and who's responsible for it. And so the Lord answered. It says, the Lord answered, it is for Saul. In other words, Saul is the one to blame, Uh, which that's interesting because Saul's been dead for, you know, at least 25 years at this point, probably closer to 35 um, that means the cause of this famine was decades in the past. So if, if what happened that caused this thing is decades in the past, why is it all of a sudden, pardon the pun, cropping up now or not cropping up now? So 
Well, it's interesting because it doesn't say it's just for Saul, but then it says and for, in other words, it wasn't just Saul that was involved, and for his bloody house. Uh, <clears throat> it's a hard phrase to translate in, in English, uh, but, but it means a family that has blood guilt on them uh, because he, and then it tells us why. Uh, they, they were blood guilty because he, Saul, but they're involved in this too. His family's involved in this. He slew the Gibeonites. When we studied Saul's reign in 1 Samuel, um, we learned that Saul was uh, frequently more concerned with how people perceived him than with what God thought about him, right? That's a constant problem we have when we, we see King Saul. When he's making his decisions, the most important thing to him is how am I being perceived by the people I lead, uh, rather than what God thought about him. And so somehow, some of his family had gotten his ear on this issue of the Gibeonites, and he had sought to exterminate them. Uh, to, to, he had killed a bunch of them. He had murdered a bunch of them. Now, who are the Gibeonites? Well, verse 2 gives us the, the background, gives us some information. The king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, and then he, the writer interrupts, and he says, now, I need to remind you who the Gibeonites are. Now, the Gibeonites, they were not of the children of Israel, so they're not Israelites. They're Gentiles. And they were of the remnant of the Amorites. So these are those who were not killed when Joshua came in and took the promised land. And you think, well, I thought God told them to wipe them all out. Yes, but there's a reason. For it says that the children of Israel had sworn unto them. They'd made an oath with, um, with the Gibeonites. Now, to understand that, we've got to go back to the book of Numbers. So t- turn to Numbers chapter 9. Uh, did I just say Numbers? I meant Joshua chapter 9. Joshua 9, 18 through 21. Give you a little bit of background here. All of a sudden, as Joshua and Israelis are moving into the promised land, they've already defeated Jericho. Uh, I think by this point, they've also defeated uh, Bethel and Ai. And so uh, all of a sudden, as they're moving into further into the promised land, these, this kind of bedraggled group of people come wandering up to the Israelis. And, and, and of course, Joshua is you know, ready to wipe them out. And, and they said, no, 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 don't, don't fight us. You know, we, we have come from a land far outside the promised land. They claimed to be Hittites that were way up from like the Turkish area. And so, you know, we've traveled far because we heard about your God and we want to serve him. And so <laughs> Israel and they said, well, they're not, they're not the Canaanites. So we, we don't know what to do with them. And so they, they debated all night, never sought the Lord. That would have fixed everything. Never sought the Lord. And after debating, they said, well, we should make a deal. You know, if they want to be loyal to us, we'll, we'll enter into this pact with them. And so they enter into this pact with them, not even really knowing for sure who they are. And so when it comes out, as they travel like over the next couple of hills, over the next couple of miles, and all of a sudden they see the city of Gibeon, and they're like, all right, this is our plan to wipe it out. And the other group's like, ah, no, that's us. And so Israel finds out they've been duped. And so Numbers 9, 18, and the children of Israel did not smite them because the princes of the congregation had sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. And when all the congregation heard about this, they murmured against their their leadership. They're like, why did you make this decision? Why did you enter into this covenant, this agreement with Canaanites? But the princes said unto all the congregation, as they're murmuring, complaining, like, we're, we're going to be disobedient to the Lord because of what you said. And here was the answer of the princes. Verse 19, we have sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. We gave our word. We need to honor our word. 
So this is what we'll do to them. We will even let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore unto them. And so the princes said unto them, the congregation, let them live, but let them be hewers of wood and drawers of water unto all the congregation as the princes had promised them. That was the deal they had struck. Hey, we want to help you out, serve you. And so I said, fine, we're going to stick to that deal in its totality. So if you read through the rest of Joshua, you find out that Gibeon and its cities become part of the land, uh, land inheritance that was given to guess which tribe? Saul's tribe, Benjamin. So if you're a Benjamite, Saul and his family, you're living in this land and you've got people who have territory that aren't Israelis. They're, they're, they're Canaanites. And so there's some friction there. To add to that, later on in Joshua... Gibeon is assigned as a Levitical city, but not just a a city for the Levites to live in. It's one of the 13 cities that were given to Aaron and his descendants, the priests, to live in. And so as the Gibeonites later on become servants to the priests, they begin to assist in the everyday tasks needed to facilitate Israel's worship. They kind of gain the status as the servants for the priests where they're always there at the tabernacle and in preparation in other cities and stuff like that, helping the Levites teach the people. They kind of get a name for themselves. And so Gibeon, the city, becomes like this spiritual center in Israel. Uh, We see later on in David's reign that uh, the tabernacle is frequently set up in the city of Gibeon. Uh, Solomon moves it there. Remember, David brought the tabernacle to Jerusalem, but Solomon moved it back to Gibeon uh, and kept it there while he was building the temple in Jerusalem. And, And when it's in Gibeon, that's where he sacrificed those thousand burnt offerings to the Lord. And then that night, the Lord came to him in the dream where Solomon asks for and receives that great wisdom to receive, uh, to lead God's people. All that happens in this Canaanite city. Now, later on, under Nehemiah, we find the Gibeonites working to rebuild Jerusalem's wall side by side uh, with the returned exiles from Judah. Pretty much counted, you know, as fellow kinsmen, Israelis. So clearly, David fixes the problem at some point. But when we look at the story of the Gibeonites from start to finish, you know, a group of deceptive, you know, Canaanites under God's wrath to, to people who are serving in, the, in the, the tabernacle and then the temple and then working side by side with Israelis, you know, to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, uh, that's a pretty cool redemption story for a bunch of people who weren't even supposed to live. But the problem is that at this stage of the process, uh, many in Saul's day did not agree with that assessment. Um, They didn't agree with uh, uh, Joshua's decision and the tribal leader's decision to honor their promise. And so because Saul was zealous to garner their favor, um, especially when some of those who in his own tribe are telling him uh, to do something about this are his own sons, uh, Saul decides to exterminate them. The end of verse 2 in Second uh, Sam, Samuel uh, 21, it says, And Saul sought to slay them in his zeal, not to the Lord, but to the children of Israel and Judah. The word there for zeal, it means a desire for exclusivity in a relationship. Now, that's good sometimes. Uh, Jesus, you know, uh, referenced, or the gospel writer referenced, you know, the zeal of, uh, of the Lord of hosts has consumed me when it was referring to Jesus cleansing out the temple. Um, and of course, the, the prophet says it got him in trouble, you know, and it, and it did. They hated him for that. Um, that's a good zeal. Um, I, I desire exclusivity in the, my relationship with my wife. That's not a bad zeal. 
all right? But sometimes a zeal for exclusivity can turn into sinful things like jealousy and other stuff like that. And so, you know, when God commanded uh, Joshua to wipe out the Canaanites, later generations of Israelis, they made the mistake of thinking that God told Joshua that, not so much because of the specific sins of the Israelis, of, of the Canaanites, but because they believed God only wanted relationship with Israelis. They developed this idea that it wasn't just that they were God's chosen people to be a light to the world, but they were God's chosen people, period, and he didn't pick anybody else. He didn't want anybody else. He just wanted them. And so this was that mindset that Saul has at this point in time, that he's zealous, not for the Lord, but for his own kinsmen, who he's thinking, we got to share this land with this people. God doesn't even want a relationship with them. Now, of course, we know that's not true, right? We know that God spared multiple Canaanites who repented of their sins and turned in faith to the Lord. Rahab is the clearest example of this, and that's in the first city that Joshua attacked. These individuals, when you read the ones who were spared, there were others who were spared too, and those who were spared who came to faith in the Lord, they are never treated as Gentiles, but they're treated as part of Israel. Plus, <laughs> it's not like uh, Saul and his ancestors have always been zealous like, about this stuff. When uh, Israel defeated the strongest Canaanite factions under Joshua, um, the tribes, all of them, compromised on the command to wipe out the Canaanites, and they let pockets of Canaanites remain in the land with them. And what resulted is what we see here now, and, and sadly, <clears throat> to be honest, what I sometimes see in the church today. Sin is tolerated until it gets in the way of what we want. And then we conveniently start quoting Scripture to condemn somebody else. That ought not be. You know, one of the best lessons I ever got as a, as, you know, in parenting was reading a book, I think it's called I think I got it from Shepherding a Child's Heart. I thoroughly recommend that book <clears throat> for parenting. But one of the things it talked about in there is said, if you only discipline your child when you're annoyed enough to do something about their behavior, what you have taught them is that the reason you're disciplining them isn't because they did something wrong, but because you're annoyed. <clears throat> and that is not why God disciplines us, and it's not why as parents we're supposed to discipline our kids. I'm to be consistent whether I'm annoyed or not, <laughs> whether I want to put up with it at that moment or not, which is why making clear boundaries for your kids and then sticking to them steadfastly, consistently is a must. Otherwise, your kids will see right through whatever you're trying to say to them. You have to be consistent and you have to keep the boundaries clear. Now, God, during the book of Judges, did send numerous prophets to Israel to warn them of their toleration of these pockets of Canaanites. And so what happens now is those words of these prophets become a rallying cry to the lobbying group who's trying to get Saul to exterminate the Gibeonites. And while Saul justified the action as his spiritual duty, his, you know, uh, loyalty to his countrymen, um, he violates the covenant that Israel made with the Gibeonites. Now, I'm sure that there were some in Israel, some in 
you know, his cabinet when someone brought up and said, hey, we made a covenant with these people. I'm sure there are some said, yeah, but that was a dumb covenant, you know. That was a, that was a dumb agreement our ancestors made, and they, and, and they were tricked. It wasn't even an honest covenant. It wasn't even an honest agreement. But what's interesting is we see that the Lord, after this time when Solomon's king, through Solomon, he addresses uh, such attitudes in his word. Look at Ecclesiastes 5 with me again. read it in our scripture reading, but I, I just want to highlight a few sections. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1, the old King James, it says, keep your foot when you go to the house of God. Um, It really just means Watch how you walk. Watch how you conduct yourself when you're in the Lord's house. Um, you know, when you go up to the tabernacle, and of course in Solomon's day it would be the temple, you know, um, be careful. And be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. You know, so you'd go to the temple and you'd hear somebody, you know, teaching or, you know, one of the priests or the Levites teaching or something, you know, and they'd be talking about things and you'd be like, oh, I, I, you know, I all right, you know, I need to do this. You know, this is what the Bible says, I need to do this. And, and, and it's almost like the Lord says, that, that's great, but think about what you're going to say before you do it. Think about what you're going to commit to the Lord before you do it. It's great to learn about the burnt offering, you know, but don't come and bring one if you're not ready to lay your whole life down. And so the idea is think about what you're there for. Think about what you're doing. Think about what it represents. I'm, I'm kind of an... I'm kind of an uh, I'm kind of grouchy when it comes to like my personal, you know, interactions with the Lord. I'm not going to lift my hands if I don't mean it, you know? And so there's times, you know, when it is a sacrifice, you know, to do that because I'm not feeling it, God. You know, I don't want it to be disingenuous. Um, So, you know, for me though, you know, when I'm lifting my hands, it's usually because there's a lyric and I'm like, I want this to, this is my heart, Lord. I'm I'm yielding to you or I'm I'm pointing the way to you or I'm, you know, I'm I'm giving you the praise because you deserve that. There's there's an intellectual thing going on that, that causes that decision. And that's what, that's what Solomon's saying here. When you, when you come into the house of God, don't just be some emotional whatever, you know, think about what you're doing and think about how you're worshiping. It needs to make sense. Because you should be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. Why? What, what's the problem with a, a fool? For they don't consider that they do evil. You know, come bring a burnt offering and then go out and do whatever you want. Or come bring a grain offering which symbolized your service to God but then never fulfill your service. Or come bring a peace offering and just go through the motions and have a nice get-together but don't actually spend any time with the Lord. Or bring a sin offering and never really repent. He goes on, he says, do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart be hasty to utter anything before God. Because God's in heaven and you're upon earth. There's a big gulf between you and the Lord. Big difference. You might say something to somebody else and, and it might not be a big deal, but God's God. So let your words be few. That doesn't mean that we don't pray a lot or we don't, we don't communicate with the Lord a lot. That's not what Solomon's saying here. What Solomon's saying is, he's saying, in your vows and in your commitments to God, and you know, I'm going to do this for God. He goes, let your words be few. Jesus said it this way, better to make a, I mean, uh, let your yes be yes and let your no be no, right? Just, you don't need to make a vow. Don't swear by heaven because that's God's throne. Don't swear by the earth. It's God's footstool. 
Verse three, he goes on to explain, for a dream comes through the multitude of uh, business is what Old King James says, but it means dream comes through a multitude of activity. I can be busy about spiritual things and not really think about what I'm doing. And a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. So, if you get to a place where you're going to make a vow, don't make one, you know, rashly. Don't make one quickly. Think about what you're doing. But if you do make one, and he's thinking about, remember, these Old Testament offerings primarily here is what he's, what he's in mind, is in his mind. When you vow a vow unto God, do not defer to pay it. In other words, don't default on it. Don't delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay that which you have vowed. For better it is that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And here we see verse 6, the, the problem with the Israeli mindset during Saul's uh, uh, reign. He says, do not suffer your mouth to cause your flesh to sin, neither say you before the messenger of God that it was a mistake. You know, God comes and says, hey, you know, you said you're going to do this, you need to, you need to do it. You made a vow. And, oh, Lord, that was a bad, that was a dumb decision. I shouldn't have. He's like, that's not relevant anymore. You made the vow. I get married couples come to me sometimes and go, well, we didn't really think this through. We made a mistake. And I said, too late. Said, you know, well, we don't think it was God's will. It's God's will now. I always love what one of my college professors said. He, he said, if it wasn't God's will before, he said, the minute you say I do, it is. So don't suffer your mouth to cause your flesh to sin. Neither say before the messenger of God, I made a mistake. For why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? And that's exactly where Israel is right now. It didn't matter that the covenant that Joshua and the leadership of, of the tribes made with Gibeon, it didn't matter that that was a mistake. It didn't matter that it was a bad agreement. They should have sought God before they made it. And so, because they didn't and they made it anyway, God expected them to honor it. And the cool part is, Israel did for centuries. He did for centuries until Saul and his sons went on this wicked crusade. And so, I find it ironic that, you know, God commands them to wipe out the Amalekites, but he doesn't do that. God, you know, tells him to, to lead with justice, and he's persecuting David and others. So rather than bringing justice to the land like he's supposed to, Saul and his sons, they become guilty of mass murder. And the only way to satisfy the guilt of murder under Moses' law is blood for blood. It's capital punishment. Now, we could say the Lord took care of that uh, when Saul and some of his sons died in battle against the Philistines, right? So there's nothing to be done about that. But we're going to find out that Saul had other sons that were involved in this process that are still alive at this point. So verse 3 brings us back to our story. That's all background. <laughs> brings us back to our story here in 2 Samuel 21. Verse 3. Wherefore David said unto the Gibeonites, that's where we got interrupted at the beginning of verse 2. He says to them, what shall I do for you? And wherewith shall I make the atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Um, what's cool here is that even though many Gibeonites must have died, um, it says here that Saul failed in his extermination attempt because they're still around. And so he addresses this group of people, and he says, what shall I do for you? You know, how shall I make atonement? How, do, how can I 
Atonement means to remove guilt for wrongdoing, and it's usually by, you know, some kind of sacrifice. Um, how can I get it so that you'll bless the, the inheritance of the Lord? Israel was God's inheritance. And so David still does put a distinction between Israel and the Gibeonites, uh, but he recognizes that he needs to give them justice for those murders. And so and he says, what must I do that you'll stop crying out to God for justice and ask God to bless us again? What needs to be done to restore the relationship we had when Joshua made this covenant with you? And so verse 4 gives us the Gibeonites' answer. They said to him, we will have no silver nor gold uh, from Saul nor from his family. I don't know if you're going to get it from Saul. He's dead, but uh, we don't want that. Then he also says, neither for us shall you kill any man in Israel. So uh, again, this is kind of the, they said we don't want money, which is one of the ways you could give restitution for a trespass. And then the other normal way that you would give restitution is through capital punishment. You know, uh, how many Gibeonites died? You know, well, 17,000. All right, kill 17,000 Israelis, you know. Uh, we're, not looking, we're not asking for that. that that's not going to fix this. That would have been the normal two solutions in Israel, either financial payment restitution with like a, a percentage, I think it's 20% difference uh, added on, whatever the cost was, and then, or, or blood for blood. And so, verse 5, they explain what they're looking for. They answered the king, the man that consumed us, the man that tried to completely wipe us out and that devised against us that we should be destroyed for remaining in any of the coasts of Israel, let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and then we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. And David agrees to it. He says, I will give them. Now, they're not going to kill these, these men by hanging, these seven men. Uh, the word here, it, it means that they're going to display the body publicly. Um, and they'd usually put it on a cross. They usually put it on some type of a, a cross beam or something like that uh, with the body. Uh, they would execute them publicly, it says, in, in Saul's hometown, and then put the bodies on display, hanging them on a cross or something similar to that. Um, and, and the thought is, they said, whom they do, we're going to do it in Saul's home city because the Lord chose Saul, you know. In other words, since God chose Saul, his actions should have lined up with God's word. He should have honored the covenant with us. And so you're saying, David, if you let us do this, you let us execute these seven men and we put the bodies up there, it will display to everyone that you're earnest in correcting Saul's violating of the covenant. Now, this is a part where it's hard. You think, you know, that's brutal, and it, and it is. But while it, it is brutal, it does show that the Gibeonites' time with the priests had taught them uh, the Scriptures in so much that they knew them better than many Israelis. And uh, there's a lesson in that here. They knew the law, and that the law demanded what? It demanded payment. It demanded payment. The law is clear. The wages of sin is death. There's no escape. You, you can't bring enough money to God that God goes, okay, that's enough to make restitution for your sins. You can't go find a bunch of other people, you know, to make up for it that, that they'll, they'll pay the price. You could, you know, slay all the people in the world and it's not going to make up the price for your sin. The only thing that can take care of it is a brutal death where a body is displayed on a cross. A death all of us deserved because all of us violated God's law. And so when I, I read this story, while there are hard things here, I think of the fact that while David surely had conflicts in his life right now because of his sin, 
This account brings up the fact that all of us have a way bigger problem because of our own sin. And the good news is that Jesus experienced the brutal requirements that the justice of the law required. And if you and I look to his cross, we too can be forgiven and God's wrath be removed from us, just like it was from Israel. Now, while David agrees to this proposal, that does create a problem for him. Because if you remember 1 Samuel, David made his own promises, right? David made a promise to Saul that he wouldn't wipe out Saul's line, right? When he became king. And then secondly, David also made a promise to Jonathan that he would not kill any of Jonathan's surviving offspring. So how can David honor this proposal that he agrees to here without violating another covenant that's been made and then in turn just become just like Saul, a covenant breaker? Verse 7, it says, But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. David immediately declares Mephibosheth off limits. You know, he, he is off the table for David. He is not someone I'm going to pick for this. Which, by the way, is what you and I should do when we've given our word on something. That should always be off the table. One of the things that we try to do with folks who, you know, are really struggling in their marriage and they come for counseling and the, the divorce word is on the table in conversations a lot, you know, between one another. Our, one of our first goals is let's get that off the table. We can't move forward until we get that word off the table. We get that word out of your vocabulary. This was off the table. And it, when I give my word, breaking it should always be off the table. You know, and I, and I ask you tonight because sometimes we need to, to ask the Lord, Lord, am I a person of my word? Are you a person of your word tonight? Or do you leave options on the table that violate your commitments? Well, all of Saul's sons are dead, so who is David going to pick? If all of Jonathan's descendants are off limits, what other choice does he have? Well, Saul's sons had surviving children. David, however, doesn't pick any of them either because of the promise he made to Saul. And so instead, he picks Saul's offspring from one of Saul's concubines and from Saul's daughter, verse 8. But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bare unto Saul, and their names are Armoni and uh, Mephibosheth, uh, Armoni is not to be confused with the guy who designs high-end men's suits. And obviously this Mephibosheth is, apparently that was a family name or something because it's a different guy, but the same name. And then it says he also took five sons from, this is a mistranslation here, it says Michael, the daughter of Saul. That's David's wife. Michael's David's wife, and we already know from Second uh, Samuel 6.23 that Michael never had children. So that it can't be her. Um, he took five sons of not Michael, but Merab. Uh, this was Saul's oldest daughter. And you say, how do you know it's Merab? Well, it tells us. The daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. Uh, we know from 1 Samuel eighteen nineteen that David was promised Merab first before Michael ever came into the picture. Remember, David said, if you go, uh, Saul said, listen, if you go fight these battles for me, I'll give you my daughter to, you know, to marry. And so David went out and he fought the battles and he came back and Saul had already married her off to this guy. 
this guy, Adriel. And so later on then, David married the younger daughter, Michael. So um, two sons then from a concubine, and then five grandsons of Saul are chosen from Michael. Uh, I'm sorry, from Merib, his daughter. And so verse 9, they're executed. And it says, and he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the hill before the Lord. And they fell all seven together. So in other words, they didn't, that's not, they didn't, weren't killed by hanging. They, they were executed all at once, and they were put to death in the days of harvest, just giving us a, a frame of time, in the first days in the beginning of the barley harvest. So they did it right at the start of when the crops are supposed to be planted and, and hoping for the famine to end. They execute these seven guys, and then they put their bodies out on display uh, in you know, Saul's hometown. Um, now, bodies hung out for display like that, of course, attract carrion beasts, you know, birds, vultures, uh, critters who are going to come up, and, you know, that's what they do. Um, and so, of course, the reason that you hung a body out like that was because the gruesomeness of seeing that kind of added to the shame, and it served as a vivid warning for others not to duplicate their crimes. Um, Generally speaking, God did not allow Israelis to keep a body exposed to the animals like this overnight. You could do it for the day, but you needed to take the body away at night. So this was not a normal tactic that God allowed the Israelites to do. But because this was a national crime with national effects, it was a, you know, the famine was affecting everyone, the verdict was to leave the bodies out, it says, before the Lord. In other words, it was saying, God, we've taken care of this. And basically, they said, we're going to leave them out here until we know you're, you believe we've taken care of it. We've done enough because we see the famine is, is ended. We get some crops coming in. That was the plan. And so, uh, to them, that would be the sign that God had forgiven them. Rizpah, however, the concubine, she was determined not to let the creatures at her son's bodies. And so, in verse 10... It says that Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, she took sackcloth. That's the normal mourning gear. It's like camel's skin or some other type of very scratchy skin creature, sometimes goat skin, turned inside out. So the scratchy part is the part that's touching your, your skin. Uh, it's uncomfortable because you don't want to be comfortable during that time. You're mourning. You're grieving. And so the stuff she'd normally be wearing, it says she spread it for her upon the rock. In other words, she went out there and that became her bed, the sackcloth. Uh, This uncomfortable material became her bed. And she says she did it from the beginning of the harvest until water dropped upon them out of heaven. And she did not suffer the birds of the air to rest on them, the bodies, by day, nor uh, the beasts of the field uh, by night. So um, obviously that's a little uncomfortable um, uh, to think of a mom out there with two corpses, you know, and making sure keeping all the animals and the birds from uh, doing their thing. Um, And that's why I said this is a weird chapter. It's hard. But she was doing this to honor them. And, uh, And so she did it until the water dropped. In other words, the time when you would normally begin to see the crops starting to to grow. Uh, And when David hears about what she's doing, um, he's moved with compassion, not just to take the bodies down, but to give all of Saul's family an honored burial. Look at verse 11. And it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. And so David went and he took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, uh, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Bashan, where the Philistines had hanged them when the Philistines had slain Saul in Gilboa. And he brought 
up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, and then gathered the bones of them that had been hanged. By this time, natural things had happened and the bodies were, you know, had decayed. Um, and hit the bones of Saul and Jonathan and his son they buried in the country of Benjamin and Zila in the sepulcher of Kish, his father. And they performed all that the king commanded, and after that, God was entreated uh, for the land. Um, why did David do that? Well, he, again, he's moved with compassion, but he's also moved to, he doesn't want anyone to misunderstand what he's, doing, what he's done here. David didn't want anyone thinking he was violating his own promise to Saul and to Jonathan. He didn't want anyone ever getting the idea that he hated Saul or that he had plotted to take the kingdom from him. And so he decides to take the bodies down long before the Gibeonites had decided. And not only does he give them a proper burial of honor in their, their forefather's tomb, but he goes and gets the bones of Saul and Jonathan, and he puts them into Saul's father's tomb. Um, now, this harkens back to another story way back in 1 Samuel when uh, the Philistines killed Saul and Jonathan in that battle and Saul's other sons. They desecrated Saul's body, Jonathan's bodies, and, and then they hung them up on the streets in Bethshan. I think Joshua says the, uh, the walls, so the streets here refer to the main gate that you come into. They hung them out for everybody to see. Uh, it was kind of uh, to display their victory. We did it. We finally defeated this king who had been a thorn in our side. But we know that in the middle of the night, the men of Jabesh-Gilead went and rescued those bodies and gave them a proper burial uh, to repay uh, the time when Saul rescued them from the Ammonites when Saul first became king. So you've got to go way back to 1 Samuel to get all the story and the back, background of why the, uh, the bones are not in their father's tomb. Uh, but their remains had stayed there in Jabesh-Gilead, never receiving uh, an honored burial in their homeland. And so David here, he rectifies that, you know, not just for, for them, but for these seven men who were descendants of Saul who were executed as well. And it tells us that it's only after David does that, only then, it says uh, that God listened to the nation's prayer to end the famine. And so <clears throat> I think what we conclude from this, you can read this and you think, man, that's kind of harsh, God. Like, you know, why, why would you handle things this way? I don't think that's the lesson we're supposed to get out of this, and I don't even think we're supposed to think that. I'm not even sure we're supposed to sit back and go, yeah, God was okay with this. Like, I don't think that's the, 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 the sense we're supposed to come away with this from. I think the lesson we're supposed to get is, is twofold. Number one, promises matter to God. I think that's the lesson we're supposed to get from this, that promises matter to God. And, and that's why Jesus said, don't make vows, you know? Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. And... If you make a vow to God, then keep it. Keep it. Because just like Solomon said, what Israel experiences is God literally, literally destroyed the works of their hands for three years. They would go plant the crops and nothing would grow. No, no rain, no crops, right? For three years. <clears throat> I love reading in uh, Haggai, uh, the section there where it says they're, they go to work and they come home and they're like, God, I... I I put my paycheck and the money for my paycheck in my pocket, but now I'm home and there's nothing in my pocket. And the Lord's like, yeah, because you got holes in your pockets because you're, you're not honoring me. He says, honor me first and then I'll take care of you. And then in the next chapter, you know, they start being obedient to the Lord. And then the Lord starts saying, you see how things are? You know, if you, if you honor me first, then I'll take care of you. But if you try to take care of yourself first, well, guess what? I get it anyway. I'll get it anyway. 
My dad, he always tells a story um, about give, his own experience in, in uh, learning to give to the Lord, being faithful, uh, you know, uh, to give. And uh, my pastor used to bug him all the time because my pastor at that point in time, this is not a Calvary, <clears throat> he knew who gave and who didn't in the church. I have no clue whether you give or not. I treat everybody the same. Uh, it doesn't affect me. Um, and I don't want to know. But he did know, and he made it clear if you weren't given, he would let you know. And so he's giving my dad a hard time. He's like, you guys have been coming here for like three years, and you've never, never tithed. You've never given. You know? And my dad's like, I can't live on 100%. How am I going to live on 90%? And so finally, as financial things kept piling up and always struggling, you know, uh, my pastor finally convinced him, at least try obeying God. And so you know, my dad would write out that check, and he'd write it out. You know, if the paycheck was you know, you know, you know, $190.97, you know, Jesus got, you know, $19 and, you know, 12 cents or whatever. That's the check he wrote out. That's it. You know, he wrote it exactly out. And, and, I, and I would watch my dad in the morning as I get up ready for church and he'd just sit there at the table and it's like a war between him and the pen, you know? And, he, and, and the thought, if I can't live on 100%, how am I going to live on less? Anyway, my dad kept being faithful and obedient, my mom and dad kept being faithful and obedient to the Lord, and whatever they'd committed to God, they faithfully gave, and soon it just, the battle didn't happen anymore. And I remember one reason, one thing, I, I said, I said, Dad, I said, you know, you don't, you're at the table for like two seconds now, or you used to be at the table for like 30 minutes arguing with your checkbook, you know, and, and he said, son, I've learned a lesson. He goes, it doesn't make any mathematical sense. He goes, I cannot survive on 100%, but I can on 90 I said, what are you talking about, Dad? He goes, I said, it doesn't make any mathematical sense. He goes, well, here's how it works. He goes, if I don't give it to God, he just takes it. He just takes it. And in my budget, there's no room for extra. On the other hand, if I just give it to God at the beginning, and then he's not taking it, then all my other stuff's taken care of. And so, you know, and I was like, that does make mathematical sense. <laughs> He would tell me, he'd say, he would say, son, if I didn't send it, the washer broke down. <laughs> if I didn't, I needed new tires. You know, and I'm like, I just got new tires. And I'm like, yep, well, you need them new again. They got like 24,000 miles. Like, Tough, you know. He said, somehow the Lord would get it. And, and, and the idea, of course, I'm not meaning to talk about tithing or giving. That's not my point tonight is, you know, God literally destroyed the work of their hands. And so I don't want to experience that. You know, I want to... Just let my yes be yes, my no be no, and if I make a promise, then I need to keep it. I need to keep it. So I think that's the lesson we're supposed to get here. Because it's only when David kept his own vows while at the same time rectifying the violated vow that then God restored the works of their hands. So now, while a three-year famine sounds like a giant problem, David runs into some literal giant problems after this is resolved. Verse 15, moreover, which means on top of all this, uh, again, God had told David, you're going to have wars from now on. You're going to have conflicts from now on. Verse 15, moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel. It had been years since the Philistines had fought with Israel. And so David went down, it says, and his servants with him and fought against the Philistines. And then it tells us David waxed faint. That is a fancy way of saying he just was out of gas. David, by this point, is likely in his 60s. I mean, he is not the, uh, he is not the uh, young warrior he used to be. And so he is exhausted on the battlefield. And so, verse 16, it says, Ishbi Benob, a great baby name. Ishbi Benob, which was of the sons of the giant. There's only one the giant that we know about. That's Goliath. 
And it tells us the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass in weight, uh, being girded with a new sword, he thought to have slain David. Um, This is one of Goliath's sons. Uh, His um, spear weighs eight pounds. That's what 300 shekels of brass would be, eight pounds, which is interesting because that's half the weight of Goliath's spear, which means Goliath must have had a tiny wife. I don't know if that's true. I'm being silly. But he ends up basically seeing David on the battlefield exhausted and and when David's got nothing left in the tank and he's like, yeah, I'm killing the king. And so he goes after David and and David would have died, it tells us, verse 17, unless he'd gotten help. Uh, Verse 17, but Abishai, the son of Zariah, so David's nephew, uh, those cursed sons of Zariah that he'd drive him nuts. It says he I love King James, secured him. It means he just helped him. He helped him and he smote the Philistine and killed him. So now Abishai's killed a giant. And, uh, and then the men of David, they swore unto David saying, you shall go no more out with us to battle that you do not quench the light of Israel. And so um, the men make an oath. This is a serious intervention for David. We're not letting you go out to fight with us anymore. Our nation is barely holding together right now. It will become a wreck if you get killed. You're our light. Now, David in his songs made it clear that the Lord was the light of Israel, not him. But, but there is some truth here because Jesus called us the light of the world, right? So we become lights to others when we let the Lord shine through us. And so that's what David, that they're saying for David here. You know, you, you're, you're the light of Israel. We, we see the Lord in you. And if you go away, we know that something bad, baser things are going to take over and it's going to be bad. And so after that, you know, uh, you know, the good news is that David didn't need to be on the front lines because while he did shine the Lord's light, the Lord is the one who was that light in and of himself. And as a result, that means victory wasn't dependent upon David going out to fight. God could shine through others as well. And, uh, and so verse 18 tells us, we got some others who shined in these battles. It says in verse 18, and it came to pass after this, that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. And then, uh, Sibbekai, the Hushathite, he slew Saph, which was of the sons of the giant. Kind of trying to figure out how you got one kid named Ishbi Benab and then just Saph, you know? Uh, but I don't know, maybe Goliath didn't name the kids. Maybe it was somebody else. Verse 19. And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines, where El Hanan, the son of Jair, uh, or a regime at Beth, a Bethlehemite, he slew the brother of Goliath. That brother, word brother there, uh, is in italics because it's not the brother, it's another son. Uh, we learn that from later in the chapter. Um, he slew the, this connection to Goliath the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a, a weaver's beam. Verse 20. And there was yet a battle in Gath. So this is the fourth battle that occurs, where was a man of great stature that had on every hand six fingers and every foot six toes, uh, 24 in number, and he also was born to the giant. And when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of uh, Shimei, the brother of David, so another of David's nephews, he killed him. So verse 22 sums up, these four were born to the giant in Gath. These are four of Goliath's sons, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Now, uh, I'm out of time for the most part, so we could reference and go into all these guys because some of them are named elsewhere. Uh, Some of them appear in David's list of mighty men, and some of them, this is the only time we hear about them. They just stepped up to the plate in this one moment. And, you know, and I think that's a, a great 
lesson for us because it asks the question, am I willing to be the one to step up even if it's just for one moment? Like if that's it, am I willing to be that person? Am I I willing to let God use me as he sees fit? You know, when we read that verse 22 there, it's powerful because whether they did lots of things that people saw or just one deed, all of them are mentioned alongside David's great deed of slaying Goliath. They're all mentioned as equal. Think about that for a moment. Pretty much any time you bump into somebody on the street today and you ask them, do you know about David and Goliath? Oh, yeah, you know, it's a little guy who slew the giant, you know? Everybody's heard of David and Goliath. But God's word equates the great deed of David slaying Goliath to these other four great deeds, and he says they're all the same right here in this verse, all the same to God. And so I think the lesson for us there is that God's, God doesn't require us to do great deeds. He requires us to be faithful when he calls. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, it says, and it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. What has God entrusted to your care? What has God entrusted to your care? And are you being faithful with it? Or are you just always on the search for something bigger and better and greater than what God's already put in front of you? Now, I said I thought there were two lessons God wanted us to get from David's whole escapade with the famine. The first one was that God promises matter to God. But the second one, I think, is equally important, and it's this. Aren't you glad you're not under the law? (laughs) Aren't you glad that that's not how God deals with us? You know, that this is not how we operate in this type of a situation where, you know, brutality is absolutely demanded of us. Aren't you glad you're under grace and not law? We read chapter 21 and we go, man, that's just weird. It doesn't sound like the Lord. Yeah, there's a reason it doesn't sound like the Lord. Because it's not. (laughs) It's not the Lord. Yes, promises matter to God. But the law doesn't rescue us. It only points the way to our rescue, which is we need a Savior. We needed a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. And so rather than look to the law for our answers, we learn from the things there. We see the heart of God. We see, you know, that promises matter to Him, right? But if we want to understand what God is really after, we look to the cross and we look to Christ and the relationship we have in Him. Amen? Let's all stand. Well, Lord, this is your word, and so it's profitable to us for everything, and and so we are glad to study it tonight. Thank you for this chapter, Lord, and we we see things here, maybe even though there's things that we don't understand, and maybe even some things we still don't understand. We recognize, though, that truth that promises matter to you, and so we want to be people of our word, Lord, and we commit that to you tonight. We say, Lord, we want to be people who keep our word. Lord, help us to be people of integrity and to honor the promises that we've made to you. And then, Lord, secondly, we are so grateful for grace. We're so thankful that that brutality is not how you deal with us. You've not dealt with us according to our sins. Praise God. And that's all possible because of the cross. Lord, we thank you that you were hung up, you know, that Jesus, you were hung up before your Father for all to see, proclaiming forever that it is done. We thank you for that grace, Lord. We thank you for your loving sacrifice for us. And Lord, we give ourselves to you to follow you wherever you lead us, whatever you might call us to do. 
whether it appears great to us or it doesn't appear great to us, knowing that if we're faithful, Lord, that's, that, that's just as equal to you as slaying Goliath. Yes, maybe these guys were smaller and whatever, but Lord, you equated it together. And so, Lord, we want to be faithful in whatever you call us to do. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.